Welcome to this APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello, I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. Today, I'm really pleased to have two colleagues as guests, Drs. Merrill Landers and Drs. Susie Dusinger. Welcome to both of you. Dr. Landers is chair and professor of the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas, Nevada. And Dr. Dusinger is Professor Emerita in the program in physical therapy at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Today, I'm really looking forward to their latest point of view contribution to PTJ and to our profession. It's entitled Building the Science of Physical Therapy, colon, Conundrums and a Wicked Problem. First of all, I want to congratulate you on the title. I really liked it, and I think it's a nice way to draw people into what I see as a really important uh, issue that, that the two of you are raising. So congratulations on the article, and thank you for, for writing it. Let me start with my first question. In your piece, you question whether the current pace of knowledge creation in our field is sufficient specifically to support the contemporary seismic shifts that we all know are occurring in the healthcare industry. What's the evidence uh, behind your argument that the current levels of scholarly production are inadequate? Well, one uh, beginning response, Alan, is that we do have pockets of our professional practice that have more evidence than others. So it's not a consistent a dearth of evidence across the field, but we do lag behind other professions such as medicine, which have had a longer tradition in their uh, existence and in their scientific um, pursuit. But one um, a level of evidence perhaps of the need for more uh, research is we continue to develop research agendas that signify that we need to study this direction or that direction of our of our profession to be able to um, sustain our identity, our recognition, our effectiveness, which is really the most important thing with patients. And so we feel like although there may be not clear evidence of the lack of evidence, there are signals that we are still in need of the ability to demonstrate our effectiveness in practice. You know, if, if I can be so bold, if you want to find evidence to really support the point that you're making, one need only go back and start reading the systematic reviews that have been done uh, relevant to our field over the past five to 10 years. Uh, almost, uh, almost to a review, you can see the, the concern over the lack of evidence behind a lot of what we do. So there, there is evidence out there, and I agree with your points totally. But you know, as editor, I get to, to read all of those systematic reviews and scoping reviews, and I'm always struck by how tentative authors' conclusions have to be because of the shaky evidence. 
So I think you're on firm, firm ground by making the, the point that we've got a problem. I wanted to add one thing. I don't think there's any one piece of evidence that's a smoking gun that we have a dearth of evidence, but collectively among many different pieces of evidence, among many different lines, there is enough information and data to, to suggest there's a need. You can look at the NIH report on the research plan on rehabilitation that was done in 2021. The NIH has increased its funding by $300 million in the last five to 10 years. You can look at the World Health Care Organization has an initiative to strengthen rehabilitation research. And so, uh, and even the APTA scientific priorities for the PT profession. Um, so there are, even our own organizations and others outside of physical therapy are saying we need more research. And, you know, as we go forward and talk about your article, we'll be picking on the lack of evidence and the problem that you're you're both calling attention to. And I just thought I would highlight before we start picking on it, that when I look back 50 years to when I became a PT, we've made tremendous progress. We've got a long ways to go, but we really have made tremendous progress over, over a short span of 50 years. 50 years used to seem like a long time to me. It doesn't so much anymore. <laughs> well, I join you in that longevity, Alan, and I think we, we have made wonderful progress. And one of the things that we still suffer from, though, is the lack of translation of whatever evidence we have collected into practice. So we, we have an additional problem of not using what we have, and that creates, in a way, an appearance that we lack evidence, because if it's not being used, it's invisible. Okay, let, let's go on to another thing that struck me when I read it. Clearly, your focus is on institutions that house DPT programs. And I understand why you did that. You both have been for many, many years involved in those institutions, leading those institutions. It's been a major focus. But might it not be a little too narrow an approach if you're looking at the evidence base of our profession? And I say that as someone who spent uh, much of his career doing research outside of a DPT-based program and institution. It, you're looking at just a piece of the puzzle, right? Yeah, Alan, this is an excellent point. Um, there are indeed several other entities and pathways outside of academic physical therapy that have done some really great stuff. I mean, I'm thinking Cleveland Clinic, Johns Hopkins Hospital, Intermountain Healthcare, Shirley Ryan Laboratory, Rancho Los Amigos, there's a whole bunch of different entities out there that are doing excellent stuff. And they are supporting physical therapy. And there's also physical therapists who work outside in academic settings, but outside of uh, a, an academic physical therapy program. So there are, they are doing great stuff. We, we don't have a weakness in that area other than the fact that we need more entities like that. But we also do feel like um, they are, you know, a piece of the puzzle. But, you know, we need to call attention to academic physical therapy because we feel like we're falling short there. And I fully understand why you're focusing there. It, 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 uh, you can't do everything in one article, and I think it's very appropriate given your backgrounds. And uh, as you're right, it's a critical element in developing the science base of our profession. Yeah, and I also want to add that, you know, we as, as physical therapists who are training PhD students, we need to encourage them to move into these other entities and to give the idea that outside of academic physical therapy, there are some really great uh, opportunities. And um, so, but 
what happens though is we're pushing these newly new new PhD students into PT programs because of a lack of faculty, and and that's driven partially because of a, a proliferation of programs. Um, but there are a lot of other great options out there, and and we need people out there doing work in those areas. Well, and and your question, Alan, uh, raised our attention to whether we are fully mentoring uh, the PhD students uh, into career trajectories that might be very interesting. And I just thought it was a, a really good question because it reminded us that we owe uh, our PhD students and our profession um, full mentorship on career pathways, even in the face of a severe faculty shortage. Well, I, I will admit that throughout my career as I mentored PhD students and fellows, my number one recommendation was to avoid going into a DPT program for as long as possible. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Very seriously, because I've seen over and over again how junior uh, researchers get pulled in way too many directions in DPT programs because they're so desperate for faculty. And I've always encouraged them, stay out as long as you can so that you can really focus on developing your science before you get into this other area, because that will always be there for them. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Alan, because we do have a tradition in physical therapy of really high teaching loads, and that is a major barrier to, to doing research. I can't tell you the number of people that I have seen ignore that advice and then go into DPT program faculty and then really get sucked in and really they lose focus in their research. And it's not their fault. I understand why it's happening. You know, and I understand why the encouragement is there for them to go in, um, but um, yeah, there are some pitfalls. Well, and as, as uh, Marilyn has often said, those newly minted people become the senior faculty research uh, go-to people for, for the DPT program. And, and that means that they have been distracted from their own research agenda. Yeah, we'll talk more about that in a, in a few minutes because you do touch on that in, in your piece. And again, so many elements in your article really, really um, touched on things that I think are really critical. So I was really delighted to read it. Let's talk about evidence and its relationship to utilization of services. You're making the point that the better our evidence base is, the more likely people are to use our services. I, I get where you're coming from, but I, I was concerned in reading that because, as you know, um, people keep using um, interventions that have no evidence base, right, uh, in our field. And they've been doing it for decades, uh, despite the evidence. So there are many other factors other than evidence that we have to be concerned about if we want to get people to more appropriately use uh, physical therapy services, right? Yeah, this is a this is a really good point, Alan. Um, in lieu of evidence, physical therapists search out other pieces of evidence that they can get. And typically, in physical therapy, that is relied on 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 gurus, um, tradition, people's opinions, and that is and that is not a good replacement for evidence. But that's all that we had, you know, many decades before, and still in some areas. Um, so utilization is is actually a little bit more complex than that. I think there are there are some 
there are some other issues that tradition that I just spoke about, but competition from and and overlap with other disciplines, um, politics. Um, often we're seen as less essential. Uh, and so when economic issues happen, um, like during the COVID pandemic is, is one example, um, our services were easier to cut because we were seen as less essential. So we have a PR problem um, in that people maybe don't see us as the first line of treatment when they have an injury or when they have pain. We also have an advocacy problem where we payers are, are often not given evidence or don't know about what physical therapy does. And, and this is part of the problem is this PR problem, the advocacy. I mean, it's multifactorial. And Susie and I have talked about this a lot. And, and the idea of the fuel for advocacy is evidence. If you have evidence, it's really hard to refute that. Um, and advocacy without evidence often falls flat. So we feel like evidence is, is really a key thing here for not just advocacy, not just the PR problem, but it also helps with overlap. It also helps with tradition. So we feel like evidence is a key ingredient in, in solving some of these uh, multifactorial issues. I've always thought about it as evidence is necessary, but not sufficient. And that's the challenge that we face. I think okay. that's true. I also think that, that um, consumers are at least a little bit getting used to searching for an effective way to deal with cancer, to deal with cystic fibrosis, to deal with a lot of things that we now know that the evidence that's been generated for health conditions has really changed people's lives. So consumers help us. I agree with your statement. It's not sufficient, but it does drive interest in a discipline. Yeah, uh, I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, a conundrum that you discussed, this to me is, I think, a really interesting point that you make in your paper, among many interesting points. <laughs> um, you make the case that a high proportion of planned new and existing DPT programs are in housed in predominantly small private non-research intensive universities where the missions are more focused on teaching than in research and scholarship. And, and you cite a lot of statistics that I'm not gonna get into, but I think you make a strong case that that's, that's in fact happening. And you've written elsewhere on that issue as others have. And one of the fears that you talk about is the, the development of a two-tier system where we've got some programs that are operating in research-intensive universities and others that are operating in private, less research-oriented schools, and you point that out as, as a problem. I want to I challenge you a little bit on that and ask the question, what's wrong with the two-tier system in DPT programs? Why can't we marshal our resources in those programs that are in research-intensive universities to really exploit the infrastructures that are in those organizations and not worry so much about those that are more teaching-oriented? What's the argument for why all DPT programs must, must be so research-focused? Well, you might not be surprised to, that we are passionate about the three obligations that we pick up in academic worlds, no matter what kind of institution it is. So we are obligated to serve, to teach, and to, and to be scholarly. 
So we feel, and, and others have felt the same way, if we go down that route, which you are probably right, we could accept the fact that people in R1 institutions are not being as scholarly as they should be. So research in out of PT schools in R1 and R2 institutions is not always occurring at this time, but we could do that. But we feel like that would lead us down a technical route in the other schools so that a teaching only uh, mission would miss the point of being scholarly and building the body of knowledge of our profession, which still needs to be built. So we think that would be a very unfortunate route to take. Fair enough. Time will tell. It will tell. And and we're, we're fighting, perhaps, this is why it's a wicked problem. We're fighting against a bit of a, research has become a bit of an afterthought. You're, you're loaded with teaching responsibilities. You have a family. You can't do everything. And the workload requirements at many institutions do not favor developing, beginning, sustaining a research career. And then it becomes an afterthought. And then you get accreditation requirements that really value a presentation here and there as a scholarly output. And we're objecting to that as well because it essentially makes it less rigorous in our view what your output is. So you end up meeting the accreditation standards and not meeting the standards of rigorous science. Yeah, I could see the 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 problem. The, the flip side, if I might, is that one of the consequences of trying to get everyone on board in doing meaningful scholarship and research is that the accreditation requirements become watered down. And that's a concern that both of you raised in the article that we focus too much on quantity and even our definition of what meaningful scholarship has been watered down. Uh, one could argue the reason that that's occurring is that there's a lot of pressure from the um, constituents in these non-research-oriented schools to keep the standards low so that they can meet the requirements. And so that might be an unintended negative side effect or the argument that you're making for the way in which we should be heading. Might it? Yeah, it, it, we see three choices. One is lift up those people who are not producing so the profession and patients can benefit and try to expand the pie, the research pie. Second choice is to close all schools that are not productive. So if they're not meeting current expectations, they would just go away. That's not going to happen. And the third one is to change the accreditation standards, which is why we went down that road. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But um, we would have to have two different accreditation standards for the two different tiers if we went into the two-tier system. And so that's not appealing, and that would have a whole set of other problems. I want to talk about this idea that, you know, and I want to piggyback on what Susie said, that physical therapy programs often see research as an afterthought. It is not a primary focus of the institution, despite the fact that one of the important things about being a profession is that we possess a, a special knowledge that is widely recognized among other people, and it is derived from research and is derived from research within our own profession, and it doesn't rely on other disciplines to do it. And we feel like physical therapy programs need to, all physical therapy programs need to own that. They need to change their focus that research is not an afterthought. Teaching is important, but providing evidence for the profession is, is important too. 
and that it shouldn't be it shouldn't be an afterthought. And I also want to point out that all programs knew when they were forming and when they became physical therapy programs over the last few decades that research was an important CAPTI criterion. Yeah. So they went forward into a program fully knowing that there would need to be an investment in research. But the problem is, is it has become an afterthought. And that's one of the things we wanted to call attention to is, is the fact that that there is less focus on research and uh, there is rightly good focus on education, but there needs to be more, more focus on research for the, for the sake of the profession. So essential, I'll accept for a moment your argument that we should lift all boats in a rising tide, because that's basically the point that you're making. Essential to that argument, therefore, and I think you've made this and discussed it in your article, is that accreditation standards have to change with respect to scholarship and research. And I want to take one example that really struck me that you talked about in your article, and that is program faculty or programs are still focusing on student-generated research, and their faculty are spending a lot of their effort and time helping students do their projects instead of pursuing their own research endeavors. Well, I mean, I was shocked to read that. I don't work in a DPT program, so I wasn't as in tune to that issue. But it reminded me in the early 1990s, Jules Rothstein used to rail about that issue and saying we needed to change that in our culture, in our academic culture. What's going to have to happen for accreditation standards to change to allow the kind of development that the two of you are arguing in scholarship and research to improve the quality and the quantity? Have we made much progress since, say, the 1990s when Jules was making these arguments? Well, I'd like to take the 50-year view again, because I think we have made progress. So I entered the academic setting with absolutely no concept of my obligation for for science in the 70s. And then we began as PT schools to, and part of this was reinforced by accreditation, by accreditation expectations. We began to see our obligation to the body of knowledge. Now, student involvement is being driven by a number of things. One is their undergraduate experience has often included some level of research. I don't know what the quality of the research is, but they think that's something that they would like to do. So they come in and they almost demand or expect that they will be involved in research. Secondly, institutions that foster a doctoral degree in physical therapy sometimes don't get the point that this is a clinical doctorate, not an academic doctorate, the DPT. And so they have institutional requirements for student research. Thirdly, people who want to do research themselves are thinking of students, and people have said this directly to me, they are my helpers. Now that's maybe true if you hire them at a research assistant level or something, but and, and that's a very, very good thing to do. But to see students as the purveyors of your own research means you've dropped back in your uh, drive to to be a scientist. And and all of that has been complicating all of these, this growth of, um, of student research. And people are very proud of their research 
uh, that's generated by students, but it's also taking away from the time that it takes to become a clinician, to practice, practice, practice the skills, communication, professionalism, psychomotor, the reasoning, all of that kind of thing. That takes a while to develop and we are distracting students. Yeah, we're not just distracting students, we're distracting faculty. Yeah. We're taking faculty, precious faculty time away from 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 their their line of research. And um, also that, you know, that affects the quality of the research that comes out too, because you're starting to adopt it into the parameters of what the student can do, because the student's only there for a year and a half or two years in the in their research program, and they're not able to do all the things necessary to do a good research project. So there's there's multiple problems with student research. But I do want to say though that student research is um, not entirely problematic. It, it does give students a research experience um, and that help, might help to spur an interest in a future in research. It also helps them to be better purveyors of the literatures. It helps them to discern the literature better. It helps them to, you know, to reason better. Um, and I also wanna argue that we have done a poor um, job in our profession of of instilling and inculcating in our students that it is a professional responsibility to create knowledge for our profession. It's a, it should be a strong part of our professional identity um, in all of our graduates that, that, that research and clinical practice are not separate domains, that they are interconnected. And, and we need to do a better job of having our students feel a sense of responsibility to help creating knowledge in the profession. And that is integral to our professional identity. But the problem that we have is when it becomes the sole driver of research in a PT program for a faculty member. And if this is if if, if this is just a side, um, you know, and it's not it's not the sole driver of the faculty member's research agenda, then I think that that's where it's, it, it can be OK. Um, so I do think that there's there are some positives to it. But I mean, you have if when it becomes the sole driver of the faculty member's research agenda, that's the problem. Thus, your wicked problem. Yes, <laughs> yes. And uh, and you know you really make a strong case for the problem. The challenge that that I struggle with as I think about it is number one, it's not new. Point I've been trying to make. It's not new. We have made progress. I don't mean to underestimate that at all. We definitely have made progress. But what's going to need to happen? What do we need to do? to really advance both the quality and the quantity of the science that's coming out of our DPT program faculty. How, how do we do that? What do we need to do differently? Because clearly what we've been doing in the past is not sufficient. You really made that case very strongly. So what needs to happen and who needs to take the lead in making that happen? Well, I think this that's an interesting question, Alan. I think that our profession is at a place now where we're mature enough as a profession to do more complex and meaningful research projects. It requires a certain maturity and level of expertise and infrastructure and resources and a critical mass of researchers to be able to do the complex research questions that we need in our healthcare. And we need to pat ourselves on the back. Um, as a profession, because we've made enormous progress over the last few decades in helping, you know, get those foundational studies that we need, like the reliability studies, the validity studies, the outcomes research. We need all of that type of research to be able to do the more complex type of research. So 
you know, originally the idea, the, the CAPTI criterion and, and, and the emphasis was on productivity. And we think that's great. But we think that we're at a level now where we can take productivity and think more about quality and the impact of our research and doing the types of research that will help improve the health of, of individuals in society. And so we feel like uh, it's, it's at a point now where we can, we can start uh, calling for, for bigger and more impactful research studies in, our, in physical therapy. And we think the profession is ready for that. And we feel like we've done a great job getting to where we're at, but we need to shift our focus and, this is, and, and attention to improving the quality and impact of our research. I think we all also need to lift up our leaders, our academic leaders. It was my privilege to lead a program where I could look for ways to invest in science as well as in teaching and service. And yet, if new program directors are not being mentored by others to see how that can happen. In fact, I think new programs need to establish a research agenda before they establish their DPT educational program. And, and I don't know that any institution would hire me to do that, but I don't know that people are asking for that because students are the major source of income. However, it's not an easy thing to do to lead a program and shepherd new researchers into new scientific endeavors and really support that. And it's expensive. So we need to help our leaders lead a culture of science as well as a culture of teaching. Well, Dr. Landers and Dusinger, I really want to thank you, number one, for writing the article and calling attention to the issues that we've been discussing. And I really appreciate your taking the time to talk about them with me. Uh, I would encourage our listeners to take a look at the article. I hope it generates a lot of discussion because it's a really critical issue. And I applaud both of you for, for bringing it forward. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alan. You can find more APTA podcasts like this one on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.